I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. You're listening to a special five part series commissioned by Flag Art Foundation for their exhibition, The Times. The exhibition uses the New York Times as its point of departure and features over 80 artists, artist duos, and collectives who use the paper record to address and reframe issues that impact our everyday lives. I wanted to come at this from a completely different angle than producing an object for the space. As a sculptor, I felt like I needed to give something, but really, as an artist, I felt like I needed to create a starting place for you to come in and enrich the viewing experience for everybody involved. For me, that was talking to the people who actually work within the walls of the New York Times. So, in the next five interviews... I speak to editors and writers who work in different departments of the New York Times. We talk about why they do their jobs, how they do their jobs, and what it means to be a part of this institution that everybody knows about. The list of individuals that are included in this are Michael Owen, Rick Rojas, David Coleman, Andrea Canapel, and Randy Kennedy. I have to take the time also to thank all the people involved who helped me get these interviews because it wasn't easy. And thank the Flag Art Foundation for allowing me to contribute to this great exhibition. So without further ado, here we go. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. You're so welcome. I'm delighted to talk about the New York Times in my life. And we're actually at the New York Times. We're here on the third floor, and we're looking out over courtyard. a little courtyard, and we're on the main news floor. Tell me what your position is here at the Times. So I, right now, am the briefings editor. I sort of run the briefings team that puts out the... U.S. morning uh, briefing, the evening briefing, the weekend briefing, and we also now produce an Australian and Asian morning briefing and a European morning briefing. So is that the pop-up in the beginning of the page on the New York Times where it gives you the briefing of what's going on throughout the day? That's right. And then you can run down through the actual articles when you scroll. That's right. You can, and well, what pops up, it's a little confusing, what pops up in the morning is you know, your morning briefing, what you need to know to start your day. And if you click on that, that's the briefing. But that's you. I'm running that team. That's what I mean, yeah. Yes. So my name used to be on it when I was writing the evening briefing and the weekend briefing, but now I now I simply boss people around. Fantastic. <laughs> How long have you been at the Times? For 25 years. Are you really? I started in 1993. From where? From, I came from the Daily News. You've always been in New York, or...? Uh, I grew up in Kentucky, and I moved here out of college. And did you go to school in Kentucky as well, too? I went to the University of Louisville. Did you study journalism, or would you study I political studied, science? No, I studied... Um, I was raised with the insistence that higher education was to improve your mind, not to be vocational. And, and it was also an interesting time. I was in college starting in the late 70s and into yeah. the early 80s, and women were arriving in the workforce in significant numbers, but there was no particular tradition of it yet. In general, None we're not just talking about newspapers. None of my friends' or... mothers worked, yeah, in general. It was a very strange time in that it was just at the beginning when women 
needed some kind of vocational aspect to their education. Interesting. Um, at least in the in the world I was in. What did your parents do? Um, my mom, my dad was a civil engineer, and my mom was a um, full time so, maker mother. So your dad had advanced education. Yeah, he he had a bachelor's at that time. Later, he went back and got a master's degree to match my mother's master's degree. She, your mom was as well. She got a master's in journalism back in the forties. Oh wow! Ended up working, you know, in radio. She could from where? Where was she doing? Marquette that? University. She's from Louisville, but she went to Marquette. She had to be University. one of the few women in that program. She was, yeah, and the barriers to her actually using it were high. So she came back and was not really able to make a big career in journalism, despite her her um, education. Her and education, her... right? So, and when my parents married, she, you know, they had. I'm one of eight children, so it was. Did you say eight? Yes, very full time job, but. We always got the daily paper, and the daily paper for Louisville, Kentucky was the Courier Journal, and it was a great newspaper. I grew up on a great newspaper. In college... Do, when did you start reading the paper? You, well, we always read it, uh, we, because first, when you were a kid, you'd read the comics. Right. And Dad would always, Dad and Mom would read the serious parts of the paper. Right. And then as I began to be able to read, I would try to read these articles... I didn't understand much of anything, but I would ask my parents very uncomfortable questions. As little kids do. As little kids do. Um, yeah. And in college, I, I moved out in college and lived in an apartment, worked my way through on a scholarship and uh, worked in restaurants and so forth. But I subscribed to both. You know you know what a, a college student's yeah. money is like? I subscribed Zero. to the morning and the evening papers. I needed to have both papers. Really? I needed to. I don't know so why. So it was like in your blood early on. I just... Mainly for the crossword puzzle. <laughs> but I did. I devoured them. I really loved them. And I, but I didn't love politics. But I loved to know what was happening to people. Oh, really? Politics wasn't something that... No. Never, very, never found it very appealing. Did you appreciate like the metro section? Or what was the... I just liked the stories. The stories I liked the it. stories of what was happening to people's lives. Walk me through being here 20 plus years. What did you start at? I started as a copy editor on the Metro Desk, and we had been on strike at the Daily News. I started off in journalism at the Village Voice, and I worked there for five years. And I forget I, the Voice has been around this long. It's been around a very long time, and even by the time I got there in 1985, 85 to 90, people were saying, "Oh, it's it's already it's lost, it's gone, it's no good." The Voice. Yeah, but really? we still had Nat Henthoff. We still had we had. You know, great press clips, writers, and we had we had a lot of solid, solid. But it wasn't the you know the fifties and the sixties at the Voice, or even right. the seventies. It was. So, did you know when you came to New York, you knew New York was a place you wanted to be for the job, or did you get the job and come to? New I York? came up here because I graduated. So we were talking about education. I didn't right. study journalism. I studied oh yeah everything that was interesting. I studied physics, chemistry, Japanese history. German language, French language, wow. I, I, music, music history. You we just had, devoured everything. I devoured everything. And I, I, I learned a lot, but I didn't have any marketable skill that I was aware of. Right. And when I graduated, my sister, an eldest, my eldest sister was an artist and she was up here. And I was graduating and went like, oh, Louisville, Kentucky, what am I going to do? <laughs> and she said, do you want to come to New York? I was like, ha. Yes. So I 
put all my stuff in a Greyhound bus. Oh my gosh. I flew up, but the stuff came up on the Greyhound. And moved up here in 1983, um, and that was, and I've just loved. And you stayed since. Oh, I loved living here. I moved to New Jersey for one year while I was covering New Jersey for the Times. And that was plenty. Well, I would, I, I think I would be happy covering New Jersey forever. It's would you really? Fascinating. Yeah. It is a fascinating. The place. politics in Jersey are insane. Politics are insane. The geography of it is fascinating. There are a million. There's country. There's you know your horsey set. There are major urban things. It's yeah. like there are. Great there's a lot of diversity. Ethnic stories. It's it's really really rich. So rich, rich place. You started in Metro, and it, it appears to me that Metro is sort of a place where people cut their teeth. It used to be that everybody who got hired started through Metro, is either right? as a reporter or on the copy desk. And then after they had, like, you know, broken you, they would... <laughs> what was the reason for that? Because you get everything? It was to inculcate you with Timesian ways and Timesian values, and you'd be under complete scrutiny. You would... They, they'd be able to see if you were not If you were going to work adjusting. or not work, basically. Yeah. Did you do that at the other papers as well then, too, or not? At the Daily News, I was on a universal desk. Um, what is a universal met, desk? Metro, it started off as also as a metro desk, yeah. Okay. Universal is when they you get everything. They still, actually, at the Daily News, they still separate it. But a lot of places, as time has gone by and manpower has gotten more expensive, relatively, and they combine the copy desks so you're on... One set of people will read sports and politics, oh, really? and it's a way to condense. It's a way to save money. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but actually, when I was at the Daily News, I, I we were separate. I was still Metro and National, basically. So you moved over into the Times. So I moved over to the Times after the strike was over. It was actually oh, that there was a strike right then. So the Daily News was on strike for five months. Oh, okay, yes. And the Tribune Company was trying to crush the union and. We were in the union and we were standing up to it. It was a bitter, very long, it was one of the longest newspaper strikes. Do you worry about getting blacklisted and something like that? I mean, you're part of a union, so it's... Yeah, well, there was safety in numbers. I don't think I was so worried. About you were and, fine. And I was also fairly early on, like... You're younger, too. So I was younger. I felt like... What, what was worse were people who crossed the picket line at the Daily News. They That, oh, they I did. think, followed them. There were people? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. A lot of people did. Well, and then when the union people got back in, they wouldn't hire the people that crossed the picket line, or what? Well, it's just, like, I ended up having to work with some of those people here, and it was very awkward, because those, oh. it was very awkward. Like, there were people who had been colleagues for 20 years there, and who never spoke again. Are you serious? Really? So people who crossed the picket line, people who didn't, and then people who were scabs and came in from other places to take those jobs. It was That's it tough. was really bitter, really, really bitter. So I would say we're, you know, pretty much over it now. But I would still say that if I met someone and they had crossed a picket line to work, it's a very difficult economic world we're living in. But I would there would be an asterisk, right, for me. It would be a, a real question about what had presented them with the set of circumstances in which they would be willing to cross a picket to line. To do that yeah. to their colleagues. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things until you, and I think it's hard for people to understand that until they're living in it. Yeah. You, you, and not necessarily the choice you make to cross the line, but even being that person who doesn't cross it. Yeah. I think there's a big uh, to do, especially in the Midwest, because there's not a lot of unionized work in I'm from Iowa yeah so small town Iowa we don't 
know what the union represents. Exactly, exactly. When I came from Kentucky, I was like, what? What is this this thing? (laughs) And then I discovered it, and it was so precious. It's like, you guys don't let anybody destroy a union. A union is an amazing thing. And you you hear arguments against them from people who don't understand the benefits of them, but it's it's like everything else, out of sight, out of mind, without... Well, but also there's a certain, I think, what I ran into, too, was resentment. You know, when we were on strike and people would come by our picket line and they'd say, I don't have job security, why should you have job security? It's like, it's not that we should have it and you shouldn't, it's that everybody, everybody should, should have, have it. A we're fighting more, for, yeah. A little more, a little more protection for an well, average this is like, worker. This is like universal health care. Yeah. It's the, it's oh, yeah. the same argument. Yeah. Why are we fighting about who does and who doesn't when everyone should? That's yeah. a very similar argument. So, Metro, right. after the so strike. Metro, after the strike, I got here, spent... It felt like, to me, like, what I learned for a year was what we don't do. And that's what you'd heard. We don't do that. We don't do that. No, we don't use that word. No, we don't use that term. No, we don't write headlines that way. No, we don't do that. It's like every... It's just like... Your hand's getting slapped all the time. Constantly. <laughs> because there are no slang. You know, oh. I was from the world of Daily News drive-by bag swipes. Oh, and you that's what—that's so what gets the, the you can't sells the paper too. Right. We don't in the New York Times. Police never nab anyone. They don't nab them. They arrest them. They capture them. They, you probably didn't even realize you were doing it. No, I had no. Yeah, was, you had no clue that was even <laughs> slang. <laughs> you were like, oh my god, that's slang. Yeah, I had to pass a very tough editing test to be hired. Very tough editing Michael test. Michael Owen was telling me about the editing test. Yeah. And he said it was intense. It's very intense. He did his in a day, he said. He sat down one day and did it the, the whole day. How long did it take you to do? Well, at that time, they brought you in for a week. They paid you for a week. And you worked for a week on fake copy. Some of it was copy that was actually for the paper, but your work... You know, it was just right. they'd, they'd give you a parallel, you'd yeah. work on a yeah, parallel yeah. to someone else. And others were, you know, doctored to have particular errors. And so that you'd have to catch them. So you'd have to catch, like I had one about Maimonides, so I could catch it was the wrong century, so I could catch it was the wrong language, so I could catch. So my very weirdly broad sort of education and my willingness to get up and go like, oh, I don't know what that is. I'm going over to the encyclopedia to check. Which I did. This is before. This is before the internet, right, so right. you couldn't do that. But I would. I'd go up. I'd go like, well, that doesn't seem right, and I'd go and check in right. the dictionary or in the encyclopedia and be like, oh yeah, right. So I did very well on the test, but they then they didn't call me for a year. They were really? so. They were very formidable about the whole process. They didn't want to give me a tryout. I had to talk them into giving me a tryout. I had to... What was the... Do, were they like that with everyone or not? I don't know. Was it because you were a woman or was uh, it... I don't know. You have no clue. I have no clue. But that was sort of... You know, I was in Ivy League and I wasn't from a, you know, small regional paper. Right. And I wasn't... You didn't know somebody. I did know some people because they had worked at The Voice and I'd gotten a recommendation. Right. But it felt very uphill battle. And I had to brandished the fact that I had just taken the GREs because I was trying to get into grad school and that I'd scored 800 out of a possible 800 on the Holy verbal. moly. Right. right. Well, I'd been a copy editor at The Voice and at The Daily uh, News. So for like seven years, my world was looking was up it. words in the dictionary. Yeah. So I should do well. 
you know. So you knew you did. Did they tell you how well you did on your test here, your editorial test? They said I did very, very well. Where's so, the callback? <laughs> well, right. So I, you know, I had talked them into giving me the test. I took the test, and they're like, "Don't call us, we'll call you." And I said, "Fine." They said, "No, really, don't call us, we'll call you." I said, "I won't okay. call you." They said, "No, really, really, don't call us, we'll call you." I was like, "I hear you." So they didn't call. I didn't call. A year later, they called. No, a year later. <laughs> I was in my neighborhood in the East Village, and one of the editors, he was very nice, and he'd taken me out for drinks after the tryout and hung out with me and chatted. I ran into him and another Times person out in my neighborhood, and he said, hey, whatever happened to your tryout? And I said, I don't know. They never called. He said, didn't you call them? I said, no, no, They told me not, like eight times. They told me not to. So I just assumed. Was that a particular person? Was it one person telling you not to call back? I think I remember that it was one person. The same person who'd interviewed me and given me a hard time. Interesting. So the next day, there was a message on my answering machine that said, it's time for us to talk about when you come to work. That is pretty amazing. It had gotten lost on someone's desk. It just got shuffled into something. Yeah. They were waiting for the strike to be over. They didn't want to hire during the strike. So it went into a waiting pile, but then it got buried in the waiting desk. pile, just gone. And so, if I, if that editor, if I hadn't run into that editor, and that Never editor hadn't asked after what had happened to me, it would not have happened. Isn't that crazy how that works? It's very crazy. So I started on Metro as a copy editor. Gerald Boyd was the Metro editor, and Mike Rescues was the deputy Metro editor, and they've. You know, Gerald went on to be the managing editor and then was ousted in the Jason Blair debacle and died of a heart attack. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. And um, Like shortly thereafter, the Jason Blair thing? Not that, a few years, but still. Right. And Mike went on to run the International Herald Tribune and and then he went, I think he's at AP now. I remember my first day of work and they had the, their Metro News meeting and they presented a bunch of different stories and Gerald Boyd said, so Andrea, which one would you pitch for the front page? And I'm like, oh my gosh, uh, the one where the man pushed the woman into the subway, which is a very daily news. It is very daily news, yeah. And they all laughed uproariously. <laughs> because they knew it. Because they knew. <laughs> they and knew I what was you like, were going to say. <laughs> I was really... Because I should have said, like, oh, that yeah, great the know, politics municipal the... <laughs> budget story. Everyone will want to read No, no, that. no. The person into the subway. Yeah. And a few years into it, one of the top echelon editors, he took all new people out to lunch at some point. Which is, a, it, it isn't going to happen And Not anymore. And yeah. so I went out to lunch with him, but he was also telling me he wanted me to work on a startup section. Which would be what? The city section, which ran... So it's a brand new section they were going to... Back then, it was 1990, that was about 1995. So how long had you been here before you he asked you to do that? I think I was here about a year. Not very long. Not very long. I think... I think I was here from, I think, 93 to 94. I think somewhere in 94, then like a few months later, I was detached to help start that up. And it was... So in talking to uh, multiple people from the Times, uh, Randy Kennedy had a story about how he had worked for about a year and then was asked to actually start being a writer or do stuff. He started off on the city section. Yeah, that's what we had a really great conversation about it. Talking to people who are doing this, it appears, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's fairly easy to recognize when somebody can write and write well. So those people are sort of bumped up to something fairly quickly within a year after they've cut their teeth and sort of proven themselves. Is that correct or not? I 
think so. Or am I just talking to the people no, who happen I to be? I think so. Somebody once said to me that the Times is a meritocracy. And I really have a, an argument with that because in a certain way, yes, you can tell. But in a certain way, you don't know what people's internal battles are. Right. And it's a very daunting place. I found it very daunting. For what reason? Well, a lot of the people you're talking to, if they're not the smartest people you've ever met, they're... they think they are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is worse. But it, but it could be that they're the smartest people you've ever met. They could be the smartest person met. ever. But they definitely think so, whether it's true or not. Yeah. An exaggeration to some extent. But not really. But there was a lot, there was a lot more of that. A lot of egos in the room. There were a lot. And they were very... I mean, then it really was very white male um, to an extent that it's it's hard to grasp now. And I'm, you know, you you look like a white male. I, I guess you're. A white I have male. a white dude. The club doesn't exist in the same way. You you are not the beneficiary of this club. You know that club never benefited all white guys anyway. They loved. That club of white guys loved oppressing other white guys. Right. It helped prove that those were the chosen white guys. Right. There's a pedigree to it. It was really terrifying. You know, and there was this one lecherous desk head. So he would, you know, ask you if you wanted overtime, but he would never be staring in your face. Oh, jeez. Kind of thing. And, you know, they, they, everyone just tolerated him. Because that's the way it was. It was the way it was. So it was. were you one of the few women that had opportunity here because you were... Oh, no. No, 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 no. By the, by the time I got here, there were quite a few women who were very powerful, but I don't know if they were getting paid well. well There'd had to be a lawsuit. Probably not equal, right? Probably not. There's a you know union, there's a contract, so starting pay is not a question. You have to get a certain amount of starting pay. But what they how could they bump, bump you up you, to... And how quickly. And how quickly is a whole other thing. And they were much freer I, with raises I back never then. even thought about that. I never considered it. Yeah. There were a lot of tremendous women... You know, Carolyn Lee, who created the national edition and who I didn't realize that. really led us, made the first bold step into the kind of direction that we're following through on now. And when, even, when was this? Well, Carolyn Lee, let me think. When was the national edition? It would have been in the late or late 90s, I think. There wasn't a dress code exactly, although you weren't supposed to wear too cruddy. I hear you. <laughs> uh, reporters and stuff had to dress up more. But it was just that thing of like, I felt it because I didn't have an Ivy League education. I felt it because I was female. I felt it because uh, I hadn't worked my way up through smaller, you know, I'd really yeah. launched from the Village Voice and the Daily News, yeah. neither of which so I'd never covered, you know, some podunk city hall and I'd, you know, people I didn't think you cut your teeth or had done, right. done the dirty work enough to. Right. That's right. tough. Yeah, it, but it was it was also so cool to be around to be around such smart people. Like right. if, if the point was to talk about what's actually happening, you couldn't to dream have that of, conversation with the best people. Yeah, it was yeah. just fantastic. And the, the old school way we did, you know, we were still printing our computers. We were working on computers to edit, but the computers couldn't format the type. So you printed these long strips of type out up in the composing room. You waxed them. And then the... What do you mean you waxed them? You, so there's an actual waxing machine. You'd run the strips of type through a waxing machine that made it a little bit sticky. And then you... The composing room guys... Editors were not allowed to touch this type, union rules. But the composing room guys, 
who I think were called printers, they picked up the type and they stuck it on these boards that were gridded and had blue lines that wouldn't show yeah. up in a camera. And that, so they lined everything up. They put the you know the, the logo. They, and then you had stories. If it didn't if it didn't quite fill the space, they'd cut between the paragraphs and spread them. Or if it was over, then you have an editor like me. My job at that point, I would if I was the composing room, if I was assigned right. to that, I'd go up with a blue pen. And if this story was two paragraphs too long for the page, whack, 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 I'd cr- make a cross through the what sections. could be cut out, and you'd cut it on the stone, they'd say. They'd actually cut and paste. And then whatever paragraph I marked out, they would the guy with the exacto would come, and come in and fill it out. Oh, my and gosh. And you could even, if you had a good relationship with these guys, you can even get them to fix a typo. You get them to cut a letter or out of scratch something Scratch away an stick. E for an O. Or like, <laughs> you could, yes. Yeah. <laughs> It was really fun. And then when I started on the city section, we were the first in the building to actually, in ATEX, which is using old DOS, code the type to be able to fit onto to the page. Fit and to wrap and to and leave then be able holes. To print directly and off so, of. Yeah. And at one point... What um, was this? 95. That is not even, That's when I graduated high school. That's not that long ago. I know. It's not that long ago. Things have changed so fast. At one point, I was writing, I was doing research for a biking around the city issue, and I laid out bike routes for all the five boroughs. And we were finished, I was riding with a friend of mine in Brooklyn, and we, we'd finished, and we were just heading back. It was dusk, I was tired, and I got hit by a car. Oh. Um, and I got hit very hard. And I rolled off the momentum because I, I was in the middle of a big intersection. I was afraid, you know, you have a lot of time in a yeah, moment like that. Yeah. So I was like flying up in the air. I'm like, oh gosh, there was a big truck there. I'm not sure if he saw what happened. So I'm going to roll this off and I'm going to get up and be ready to jump out of the way of that so giant truck. So you don't get truck. hit. Yeah. So I won't get hit. So I'm like, so okay, that's the plan. Roll it off, <laughs> get up, and silence everywhere, silence everywhere. But I'd broken both my wrists because I must have. Oh my gosh! I didn't right realize I'd hit, but I must. Yeah. I broke both my wrists, so I was out of work. But I, I was the only one that understood how to code, so I had to lie. They called me from work the next day, and I had to lie the phone down on the bed because you my couldn't head pick on it up. It and it talk, is. I couldn't. So and I talked them through the coding, <laughs> like. <laughs> For anybody, I'm getting a visual. Andrea's actually laying on her side here, yeah. showing me exactly what it looks like. <laughs> so you had to tell them how to actually do it yeah, when you broke Yeah, because it was yeah. like this skill that very few people had. Then, and of course, coding is now you know it's automated. You don't. Yeah, have to do but much I totally understand. Coding, but it was it was really fun. This is where it kicks in, where you know a little bit of everything. Yeah, and willing to learn anything. You and take anything I used on. to be able to do pretty much any job. I, I felt like any job here. I learned that as a kid. It was one of the first things that my, my parents taught me is do anything and everything. Yeah. No matter what you're asked, it's yeah. jump to it and say you'll volunteer and do it first and learn what it is because it's going to help you down the road. Yeah. So, Metro. Mm-hmm. Metro for um, Metro, then the city section. Then I came back to Metro as an assigning editor for the weekend. What do you mean, came back? I had left Metro, left the copy desk to be a copy editor, except I ended up being much more than that on the city section. I was sort of like a cross between the managing editor of the city section and the backfield editor. What's the difference between those? A level of responsibility. So a copy editor checks for uh, spelling punctuation. Checks copy. 
grammar, right. maybe writes a headline. I was assigning the stories. I was coaching these right. young reporters. So you were the reporters. next level up to make sure people were getting the right assignments to figure yeah. out what fit what person. Right. And we would, you know, we'd brainstorm on the cover stories and we'd brainstorm together on the, the whole team. How big was your team? It was four people. Oh my the, gosh, it no. It was really tiny. It's tiny. And then plus, okay, so there were, sorry, four editors and then we had... I think we just had three reporters. But that is so small. It was teeny, really teeny. We did. It was so good when we started it. Yeah. it was, I really think it was. You got to feel like you're working at a really tight knit. When yes. when people get along and they get along well, if they get along, in a group like that, and you're really working to do something, that, yeah, that's a great feeling. It is, except I wouldn't say that it quite worked that well. There was, I mean. I don't think we did all get along that well. So there was tension. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, the, I remember having to say at one point to the two top editors who were making snide comments to one another about how slow I was. Really? At one point, and I... Both men? Yeah. And yeah. I um, said to them, you know, if this is really not working out for you, I'm quite happy to step away and let somebody else fill this in, and you'll just see how fast they are. Yeah. So, and then they became much more polite. They were being like snide, and I was doing were huge older, amount of were stuff. Were they older than you? Yeah, but not a lot older. Yeah, it's just just disrespect. It was just, it was just yeah. weird, and I like them both, and I respect them both. It yeah. was. It was just one of those things that can happen if you don't. If you don't stop them, draw a line. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So from there, then I went to work on the New Jersey section, which was a mate to when the you city moved to New section. Jersey. This I is when that's you moved. when I moved to New Jersey. It was all a lot of features. It wasn't hard news. Did you have to move? No, but I wanted to. You wanted I like to be really in the wanted to be, and I, mean, I was only moving from the East Village over to Jersey City. It wasn't like a huge right. geographical move. Right, right. But I was right because when I was living in New Jersey, I was reading the New Jersey Daily Paper. I was reading the Star Ledger. I lived in New Jersey. You could feel. Yeah. You, it makes it your makes, writing that much better. Or, or it makes your it editor. relevant in yeah. a way. So that was a lot of fun. One of my favorite stories was, first of all, the there was one about the mosquitoes in New Jersey. Huge part of New Jersey's history is, and a huge part of American expansion is how you deal with mosquitoes. I had no idea. I know. Really? I know. Yeah, it's bizarre. But you, right, if you think like, about how pestilent. Uh, mosquitoes are and diseases and, yeah right so they really had to deal with New Jersey a lot of which was a salty marshland right. and you know a lot of what they've done in recent years is try to restore those marshlands because it turns out you really need them for stuff like storm, storm surges and and there are other ways to control so is that how they actually control the mosquitoes they got rid they of the drain, marshland yeah it was it was very bad so that was a really fun story and this, a story about fishermen. Like what type of fishing? Uh, well, off Long Beach Island and off Montauk. Like professional fishermen? No, like amateur. Amateur. Yeah, so there were, like, the photographer and I, Laura Pedrick, got up, you know, it's something insane. Like, we were at 5 a.m., we were at this right. bait shop, and we're shopping, we're basically shopping for fishermen. So, like, there are all these fishermen, <laughs> where, like, we buddy up to Two these. Two ladies walk in. Yeah. So we buddy up to this group of fishermen, and they are, they are like, you know, they're scraggly as hell and they're already <laughs> drinking beer and they're, you know, they're just guy, 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 guy. So we go to the beach with them and they're scanning like this one guy is scanning the water and it's like he must have x-ray vision because he's like 
somehow he can he knew see where the fish were or like more what was... of what the underside of the water right. looked like than we could see. So he's like, here, this is a good spot. They're trash talking, they're drinking beer, the sun is rising, and the scraggliest one of them says, I said, what do you really like about fishing? He goes, oh, well, you know, you get out, it's really early, it's pretty. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> You're like, oh my god! Oh my god! It's so he sweet. Must be it's pretty. <laughs> that it's so sweet. <laughs> and there was a guy in uh, off Montauk who they they were fishing for stripers, striped bass. Yeah. And he's like, if you catch, um, if you, no, if you catch a twenty five pounder, you kiss it, you kiss the fish. <laughs> and then he said, if I got a fifty pounder. Heck, I'd bring it home and sleep with it. Kick my wife out. <laughs> so a bunch of characters. Yeah, really, yeah. really funny. I mean, they're in their enthusiasm for this thing that's, which is what I love. It's, it's sort of not about politics, and it's not about how you make a living. It's not right. about money. Right, right, right. It's about something that's just a, a deeply essential part of their lives. Who they are, yeah. And it's elusive. Like you would, I mean, you don't, ju- you don't just get that kind of vision of the scraggly guy. No, you're not going to get unless you're at the beach with no. him at six in the morning. Absolutely not. You're not going to get into that either. They're not going to welcome you into that community. No. You guys are very fortunate. Yeah, we were. To find sometimes that female, sometimes being female was a huge right. key to access. Right. And also to non-threatening. Non-threatening, and also to say, could you explain that to me again? Oh. I really, I'm, I'm not sure I understood that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so why did you come back out of New Jersey then? Uh, then, the, you know, they, at that point in time, they really, really, really didn't like editors to become reporters. They were very happy for people to go in the other direction, but they did not, they wanted, if you came on board as an editor, they wanted you to stay an editor. What, so was, this the, was, a big, why, what was the intent? In the old times view, good reporters are a dime a dozen, but a good editor is hard to find. Which sort of makes sense. So if they found somebody who was a good editor, they didn't want to lose them to easily replace. That was the thinking. Not everybody could manage. Yeah. Right. Is that untrue? Or like how, how does that... Promoting people who can't manage to managerial spots is a time honored tradition here. It's... People were promoted here for their reporting abilities to do managerial jobs that they can't do. I mean, it's just normal. Well, they should have just stayed reporters. Not necessarily, but they're, you know, sometimes their best, their best work really was reporting. And right. it didn't extend to inspiring other people or editing other people or negotiating with other reporters yeah. and all the things that it takes to, Be a good to manager. manage people. Right. right? There's separate skills. But... Listen, you got a great reporter. Of course, you want that reporter's genius to infect everybody else and just to, infuse into yeah, that newsroom right. or wherever you're at. So you think, wow, I've got this great reporter, that great reporter. I can just imagine how great he's going to make our Metro desk. Oops. Yeah. Gee. <laughs> I bet that sorts itself out fairly quick. Sometimes, maybe not. <laughs> so, okay. So. <laughs> You were coming back to be an editor. I came back to be an editor, and they uh, they offered me copy editor jobs. I could either go. There was an opening on national. There was an opening on business, and there was an opening on foreign. And I said, "Well, I know the foreign desk. I love the foreign desk, but all those people have been here for like thirty years, literally. Yeah. They were all men too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were. No, there was, must have been one woman. I said to the human resources person, the really, um, any of these would be good, 
I haven't worked on business and I think I could learn a lot, so I guess that would be my first choice. I guess I'd rather not work on foreign. I love foreign, but I'd rather not work on it because yeah. I'll never have another holiday off so long as I live. Right, you will get all the work. <laughs> I'll get all the work. And they put me on foreign. And were you working your butt off the entire time? I was, but it was also great. I mean, that is... Probably a big learning experience. The Cadillac of desks. Is I mean, it, really? it really? Was, it was the best At the desk. time or yeah. now? It's still an amazing desk. I was on it in the last incarnation. I was on it for 11 years. That's a and long it was, time. It was amazing. So what, what does the foreign desk do? I mean, it, it sort of has the name, but yeah. tell me what... Oh, and now it's called the International Desk. Okay, so what is... You, are you taking all of that news internationally and you're filtering it into what the Times is and how they, they report the international news? Or how do you... Well, luckily it's, it was never up to me as one person. And even the international editor or when I was doing it, foreign editor... You're working with your branch offices. Sometimes. And that has grown over time. Because of the it internet? Used, or Well, because we bought the International Herald Tribune. We bought out the Washington Post's share... Um, of what we, of okay. the International Herald Tribune, and then we made it eventually the International New York, New York Times. Gotcha. Or the New York Times International Edition is what it is now. You know, in that process, the IHT had originally kind of been just a, res, a passive receptacle uh, for Washington Post stories and New York Times stories to just they land. just be was, over there. It was right. kind of, yeah. And that, so was circulation very good or not? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was fun. It was good. When the Times bought it, then it was a receptacle for Times coverage. But then they also had higher aspirations for it. So they tried to do some more original stuff and tried to develop more of a partnership approach with the foreign desk here. Right. And then eventually, as we realized our business model required us to really grow and that our route to growth, you know, we did the route to growth nationally as opposed to locally, right? and that worked really well, and now the focus is to grow internationally. So we really collectively got behind the idea that our partners in Hong Kong and our partners in Europe, which started off being in Paris and it's now basically moved to London, that those, those are, they're not just equal partners. We now can cover the world around the clock with big editing, you know, not big, but... This is what Michael O was telling me, too, yeah. is that when, basically, because what the news has become now, yeah. where it's constantly being updated, mm-hmm. so you have your breaking news, which what Michael works on, the breaking news, mm-hmm. coming out constantly, that that London desk yes. covers them while they're out of the office or sleeping, basically. Right. So your other offices now are essentially, you have international coverage 24-7. Yes. That's right. Now, I'll tell you where that works well and where it sometimes doesn't work well. When I think back to one of the most challenging periods professionally here, uh, it was in the spring of 2011. And in the spring of 2011, we had, I believe it was a um, civil war in Ivory Coast, coup, and it was the tsunami and Fukushima disasters in Tokyo. Yeah. And then it was the Arab Spring. All at the same time. Right. So all of these things were tremendously, it turned, you know, in the scheme of things, Cote d'Ivoire just kind of fell off the map 
you know, I mean, we covered it very intensely, and we, of course, people were risking their lives. But that there. story hasn't. But it hasn't had the same weight as Fukushima. Or Fukushima. That's twelve hours away. So our reporters were up and reporting through their day. Then we would get in and we'd start asking them questions and start trying to revise what was going on and keep them up all yeah. night. And then we'd be here early and late because you'd be because yeah. we were the point people. So so you think, oh, this would be a great time if you could actually have your partners in Hong Kong or your partners right. in London take the story over, but you still have those same two or three reporters in Tokyo up 24 hours. Same with the Mumbai attacks. I don't know if you remember that. It went on for three days. The hotel, yeah. It went on for... It was I didn't a, realize that. I didn't think about it, yeah. And we had Somini Sengupta, who's now our UN bureau chief. Somini was there. She was the only person there. We kept trying so to get somebody else. So she was up for three days. Else. She was up for three days. I mean, she caught like a nap here and she there, like 45 minutes. She must have just been drained. But, oh, I, I don't even know how people manage it. And we were exhausted. And we were just sitting at our dumb desks editing and we were exhausted. Well, this is, this is just like the thing you were talking about with New Jersey. Yeah. Moving there and living in it and having to be in it to write the story, you have to have those people on the ground yeah. Oh, yeah. to be able to update you so it doesn't yeah. help when they're out. Right, so you know you can manipulate the editing staff, and you can share out the editing responsibilities to some extent, so long as you have editors who are like-minded enough. So, what's the fix? I mean, we've tried a lot of different ways to yeah, help what did reporters you learn from on the ground. For, for instance, one of the things we have now, and we had then, in fact, and it was a big help. We have what we used to call general assignment reporters. So that would be a reporter that would be sitting there at a desk and you'd say, Jim, there's a fire, go cover the Take fire. Take whatever's or, happening Jim, right now. there's, you know, somebody died, go write the obit. Or right. Jim, whatever. So that's a general assignment. You don't have a beat. Right. It's just whatever happens. So Foreign was the first desk to do this. We embedded, and it was Graham Boley, who's still here and doing a wonderful job right now covering the Cosby trial and oh, our really? world. and yeah. um, Graham Boley, uh, and he had to get in at 5 a.m. every day, which he did. It might have even been 4 a.m. at one point. <sighs> Awful. And he would start, if there was a news story out there, he'd start writing it. He'd call, like, say there was a big Afghanistan explosion. Right. He'd call Carlotta Gall, who was our person in Afghanistan then, and he'd get two sentences from her. To get them while they're up and still functioning. Well, she, but it would, it, it's actually, well, she, she's in the middle of reporting at that point. Wow. She's in the middle of reporting. So he gets her at the scene. She tells him there's a body here with the, you know, there, she gives him, I mean, I don't want to be too detailed, but horrible color, yeah. as we call yeah, it, yeah. details that give you a sense of the scene and what, you know, what the, whatever official told her, he can take that and build a story around that. Right. And do other research and to figure out. And do other research to fill it out. Who and this person is that gave her the information and everything yeah. else. Yeah. And, yeah. Give, and look at our own stories for the background of things. And yeah. we would pull stuff from what the, but we'd attribute it. The Associated Press reported that right. X, Y. And then you get a story that's very solid for the web. And then when Carlotta, two or three or five hours later, files... We've been covered the whole time. We've got right. something who, for people who need to know. You have content. We have something. They need to know what's. They want to know what's going on. So yeah. that's kind of been a model that we've all followed since. So it's not just up to the reporter on the scene 
to file. The reporter on the scene can report. Because they can't do it all. They can't do it all. They can't also be on the podcast and also do the video and also do the graphic and also... I've been impressed with the the different levels of coverage that the Times has had recently. The podcast has been sort of blowing me away because so it's really good, but it's also, it is on immediately. Yeah. That news comes out first thing in the morning and it's always up to date and he's talking to each one of those yeah. people who are involved in it. But yeah. the level of dedication for each one of those people involved to report into him too, oh, yeah. while they're in the middle of a story, yeah. that's gotta be tough. I know, it's very funny. You've heard with Matt Apuzo a few times, it's like, yeah, I'm in the middle of breaking news. Of course you're calling me. Yeah, Michael. he was at the copy office, yeah. like picking up the phone. But yeah, that, was, that was Mike that, Schmidt. It was so Kinko's. That yeah, really the funny. Kinko's. And he's yeah. like, they're looking at me. They want the phone back. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. The guy good. who was, uh, was it, his name was, I think it was Jason. Was it? He was, um, <laughs> he was like, like on his probation week or something. Oh, was that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's Something totally like that. funny. Well, it, it's, it really hits. And it, it seems to be working really, really well. I would agree. And the, what you see, what, one of the reasons that podcast is so cool, first of all, Michael has those relationships, Michael Barbaro, partly because a lot of those people worked with him on the um, campaign. So he the, knew all of it. Because this, yeah. what, what maybe people don't realize, too, is that podcast was a, was during the campaign. It was a different model it, yeah, during the campaign. It was a campaign podcast. And then it turned the into... And then they were like, let's use this as, you know, he's the run good up worked at it. Well, yeah, well he was they were very like, good he's at good at it, at right. the run-up. So let's let's see if we can't finally get this, you know, daily podcast that we've wanted to. We, they would thought of it as like a briefing podcast. Right. You know, what you're hearing, because Michael is a good reporter, you're hearing him report. He's reporting by talking usually to his yep. own colleagues. But he, so his line of questioning he knows how to elicit really interesting information. He knows really how to get information. great information, yeah. Right. It's a, it's a skill. Yeah, it is. When is that recorded? Is it recorded in the wee hours of the morning, or when does he record that? They usually, yeah, they usually record it, I say the night before, but it does often go into the wee hours. So you went to International. So I went to International. I worked on the Week in Review for a while, and then I was on the Week in Review on September 11th. Oh, and that, wow. That, was a, that sort of changed everything. For you, personally? For everybody. Yeah. Everybody in the news industry, everybody in New York, everybody in the United States. Because the, suddenly that world that we'd reported on out there... Was here. Was here. And it was never going to go away. Right. So it changes the way you address how you even deal with, with any type of story. Yeah. And I mean, we were, we were for the first, I forget how many months... Uh, you know, special section, and we had portraits of grief. I mean, the whole organization the, reacted constantly and totally. You have to, right? Yeah. And many people here, I mean, we all, you know, one guy, Ray, who still works here in the news service, uh, canoed over the Hudson River to get to work that day because you couldn't get yeah, the here around. any other way. So when that took place, did was there an all-call for the paper for everybody to come in or what happened everybody because that's a major you don't have to call everybody everybody's calls. here that's what i wondered i was um i was riding my bike to work and i where were you living a, at the time i was living in brooklyn i was actually staying in brooklyn and i was riding my bike to our meeting on the weekend review and i was picking up croissants 
and I was almost to 6th Avenue, just south of 8th Street, and I heard a big noise, and wow. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I got to 6th Avenue. You were right down there. And I saw a bunch of people looking south. 6th Avenue runs north. I saw a bunch of people looking south and pointing. And my head swiveled south, and there was a big hole in the World Trade Center and smoke pouring out of it. And I picked up my cell phone, and I called the Metro desk, and I asked the clerk, who I'm pretty sure was Milena Rizek, who's now the culture reporter. Yeah. And I think she was the news assistant on. And I said, I said, are you alone there? And she said, yes. And I said, call everyone. Call everyone now. There's been an explosion at the World Trade Center. And remember, there had been one in the past. Yeah. Though the ba- I, in the garage or in the basement or something. In the basement. Right? Yeah. No idea that this was deliberate or that a plane you had was no clue involved. At the time. No, no, yeah. no. Just saw a big hole and smoke pouring out of it. When I later looked at my phone bill, that was at 8:46 a.m. What time did it happen? 8:46 a.m. So I really, it was like you were right within, there when it. With but Willie Rashbaum beat me. Willie Rashbaum lived down there and saw the plane, heard, you know, heard the plane, rolled over and opened his eyes and kabam. And he called the desk before I did even. He was the first one. But I think it was the second. And what I did and what Willie did and what everybody else did. I mean, if you you were in the vicinity, I mean, I was so close. Uh, I I turned my bike down 6th Avenue and rode against traffic, mesmerized. And I stopped and I bought a pen and a notebook. And I found there was a bike shop, the old Gotham bike shop, down on West Broadway. And I, the guy was out front, and I said, can I leave my bike? I mean, no, not my bike. Can I leave my computer here? Can I leave my computer? I can't. I, I'll come back for yeah. it. He goes, sure, absolutely. So I leave my computer there, but I take the bike, the notebook, my wallet, go toward the scene. my cell phone, and I keep going down, and I report. Were you at the scene? Oh, yeah. And I was there when the second plane hit. But I didn't know that's what happened. You know, you hear the noise. Because you didn't see it. You saw an explosion. It's right over our... No, I didn't even see that. Oh. These cops started running. It was... The part I was in was... I can't even remember the name of the street. But it was over from West Broadway and it was down. It was just like just north of Vesey Street. Just north of Vesey. So just north of the northern edge of the World Trade Center complex. And um, I was interviewing, and there was the giant noise, and all of a sudden these police officers were screaming and running themselves. One dropped his badge, and I followed, you know, I scrambled, and I dropped my phone. So I ran back for my phone, and I got his badge, and I, they all piled into this lobby of a bank building, and I followed them in. And I've never been called such horrible names. They called me, they called me horrible names because they were so worried because like they knew glass was going to start pouring down in slicing sheets any second now and I didn't know that so when I ran back for the phone and the badge, they were yelling at you they were of that. so angry furious that I out of concern for you right, know right. I mean? but they called Not angry. they called me horrible names it was just shocking <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Uh, and I, but I didn't realize the level of danger we were all in. How would you? I mean, you don't. No, you have no idea. You have so, no and the day it just, it was. I was down there all day. It was very. That's incredible. Very weird. Very weird. The ch- immediate challenge to civil liberties was. Right, because all of a sudden, all I remember all the regional airports being shut down. Yeah. People's livelihoods were gone within uh, two days. Yeah. 
that and then you know what level of suspicion would you need to have about just any random person for that person to your, be a, your neighbor right? to be arrested yeah so you were on international at that time still or not I was on the week in review at that point in okay, time right. and then the following the following summer in the run-up it started being the run-up to the Iraq war and they needed an assigning editor on on foreign and I I got that job did it so, did it make you want to get that job um I wouldn't say that exactly, but I, I felt like I could contribute. Right. I felt like I could I could help. I think at that time, I, I, I was even thinking the same thing. Everybody was looking for yeah. a way to yeah. participate, Yeah. To, to let go of some of that emotion. Yeah, you want to be able to do something. Yeah. You want to make it count somehow. From there, how do you get to where you are now? Well, then 11 years, <laughs> 11 years <laughs> on the corner desk, every possible, like, Every time you turned around, there was another, like, amazing, horrifying thing happening. A little intense? Yeah, it was um, some of the stuff that was... I'll give you a range of things that I found very intense. Some of the horrifying Civil War issues that went on in Congo and other parts of Africa, where these marauding armies would come through and, you know, rape hundreds of people. Slaughter villages. Slaughter villages. And... That's not an abstraction. Those are actual yeah, it's people, yeah. and it's you know it's happening, and you feel like, well, I really, you know, I'm committed to making sure that people have access to this information. So that's very intense. Uh, then we understood because partly because our foreign editors, Joe Joe Kahn, then now the managing editor, is so smart. He was able to understand that the Fukushima was a big deal. Well, that it was melting down. Like oh, we really? had, you know, he understood. He like he grilled our reporters and forced them to absorb the information and distill the information and make conclusions that they by themselves I don't think quite had gotten right. to. And he understood that we were and that that is what was happening. You know, the 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 Tepco Tokyo Electric. They kept denying. They were yeah. pretending it wasn't happening, but it was happening. And that level of concern for the fate of the world, right. you know, is very intense. Well, and the, the Iraq War was very intense. And having people disappeared, colleagues abducted, and right. taken into into in in Syria, in Egypt, in in different parts of Africa, and you. Next thing you know, you're on the phone with. I mean, I, rem- I, I, on the advice of the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, I called this particular general because no one else was available, and I said, yeah. "You must let our people go. <laughs> you must let our people go now." Because they said somebody has to say this to them right now. And call that this- was you. And there was no one else to do it. I couldn't get her to top done, editors, so, so I was like, it. "Okay, I'll be. I'll call and yell at this <laughs> this Egyptian general." What was the sure. response? You know, you have, to, madam, you must talk to someone else, blah, blah, blah. But they did release them. They did release them. But it's, and did, people have, who have been killed. Right. And Joao Silva, who was half blown up and survived. Right. But, and these, you're on the phone with someone and they say, you know, a, a bomb just landed. Like we, we were on this hillside and a bomb just landed there. We, we, we just missed died. that. Did it ever get too much? Well, uh, sure. Yeah. 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 Sure, sure, sure. It was one of my, my thoughts when I was going to start speaking 
to everybody here from the yeah. Times is it's so intense. The work is constant. It's very nonstop. But yeah. the level of information coming in and sort of that really intense information at all times. Yeah. You got to go home at night. Yeah. So that that was a major thought for me coming into this. But you wouldn't do anything else. No. Right. No, 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 no. But it, it is weird to be now in the, in the business of trying to um, tell people information that you think they need to have and to have a lot of people not able to hear it for, for one reason blocking or another. Blocking it out. Or blocking it out or whatever their relationship is to it. They're, they're, it's not reaching them and they do need to, you know, it's like, no, yeah. no, 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 I really want you to know it's something that can help you yeah. uh, assess what's going on. Yeah. I, th- I think it's tough for people to recognize how sincere the commitment of this team it of can be. I mean, yeah. not everybody, okay, not everybody is like a true believer, but actually so many people here are true believers in it, the idea that of informing people and informed decision-making and the, the value of, of solid information, solid in the sense that it can be verified from a number of different perspectives right. and, and arrive at the same place and kind of useful information in the way that the Wall Street Journal used to give business information. Like it wasn't, it, it might be from an owner's perspective rather than from a worker's perspective, but it's the facts that were in there. Like this country has it's still these important raw, to know, yeah, right? th- these raw r- resources and these labor force and this. You, then business people can make valid investment decisions based on the yeah. information. We, you know, we're telling people stuff so they can know what their prospects are of having health care, so they can know what their prospects are of being able to pay for their college education, know what, know what this uh, politician's history of activity is, so they can judge for themselves what, the, what, it gets what they scary. think the person is going to do in the future. It gets scary when people stop listening. Yeah. So today, we're near the end of this. You, yes, and we haven't even gotten to what I do now. I know, which is, <laughs> I, I want to I talk about that. So what do yeah. you do now? So I edit briefings. I used to write uh, briefings. Um, so those are these... How long ago is this that you wrote briefings? Last year. Okay. Uh, um, so they're rundowns of the news, and they're meant to be, yes, the top news, but also a mix of things. The way any front page yeah. is, you don't just have the top news. You also assume your readers have rich and complicated lives and that they're Other interested, interests. say, in yeah. sports and in arts and in... So it's not all politics. It's, it's not, not all politics all... and it's not all Washington and it's not all local. It's not all U.S. But if you're trying to contain yourself to 10, 12 items yeah. or the morning briefing, you can have a few more than that. But it's still like, hmm, not how do you... Uh, so it's you, you read voraciously and widely... What everybody's, then, what everybody's producing. What everybody's producing. You listen to what the descriptions of the stories are in the meeting. You see what, what the top editors are excited about. You see what you respond to. Right. And you come up with your list of, I think this is what be bringing to people's attention today. Obviously, there are 30 or 40 or 100 more things that we could draw their attention to. But I think if we tell them these things, then, you know, first of all, they're they're going to go to a, a dinner party tonight. They're conversant. They're covered. Right. They know what the main things are. Yeah. This is all the time they've had. They'll be covered. And 
we're going to make sure they don't just know the facts, but we're going to make sure they know a little more than the facts. We're going to really read that story and distill out the meaning of it and try to give that to you in a sentence and the link so if you have time you can read for yourself if you're really intrigued by this but one of the things that we're enabling people to do is get up to date on the top bits of news and then for the optionals we see a lot of clicks lower down in the right. briefing where you know like okay I'm up on the news now I can read this great story this art right. story about the great books I want to read because really what you're doing is you're driving those readers into content that they might not get otherwise based on the new ways of sort of looking at content through the times that's that is one of the things and there's there's a way that we're serving people even if they don't click into anything at all you know yeah. we got one of our, our the nicest thank you notes we ever got was when we first launched the the briefing and a woman wrote in and she said, I'm, I'm writing that you can hear her whispering, I'm writing this, you know, in my tent at night. We are on a camping trip. I have three kids. I haven't felt like a <laughs> real grown up in years. You finally made it possible for me to reconnect with what's going on because it only takes like 60 seconds to read this thing. She had 60 seconds. And you could be seconds. up to date. Yeah. And, she, and it was this, like, and a lot, actually there were a lot. That's pretty, that's remarkable. It was that's, wonderful. That's great. It was really, and we're, so we're serving her. Like that's, I'm glad that we, it's bringing more readers. I'm glad that they can sell advertising. But really you're serving But your, I really, yeah. really want to be relevant to somebody like that. Yeah. I want to be relevant to you. I want to be relevant to me. I need a cheat sheet. We yeah. all need a cheat sheet. There's too you much can't information. Read everything. No. But I want to make sure that I can, you know, that we're telling you, again, not just what happened, because. Well, this is, Michael, Michael was talking about this as well, too, where it's not with the breaking news. They take the extra 10 minutes to figure yeah. out what the real content is yes. that you need in that type, yes. not just the, the building yes. blew up. That's right. And the and like our push alerts are fantastic yeah, that's because they you know if that's all you get that's enough you can you actually I think that is a difference though with the Times and other news organizations yeah, yeah. and you can see it yeah yeah it's... I would agree I would agree we're and that's the impulse like it is yes we're in competition but what we're really trying to do is it... tell people what they really need to know the competition within is how. No, I think I have a better way. No, I think this could work better. No, I think yeah. this language could work better. And, you know, there, there can be friction about that. Well, you're with the, the people who always think they're the smartest people, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's actually, to some extent, that's diminished over time. Now you get a lot of people who are, who are used to the idea of there being a lot of really smart people around. Yeah. That's, that's nice. That's pretty great. That's nice, yeah. Andrea, thank you so much for You're taking welcome. the time to. This I has hope, been fantastic. I hope it's okay. I, I, yeah. Okay, give me a break. This okay. is wonderful. Good. It's absolutely good. everything good. I want. Okay. Oh, good. 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 I'm good. glad to hear it. Thank you.